Hello, and welcome to the Tuesday, March 8th, 2022 episode of The Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. This is Craig W. Hurst, Emeritus Professor of Music, podcasting from my music bunker, along with my faithful canine companion, Carmel the Wonder Dog, to share with you my latest musical interests and discoveries. I claim no special inside information about the latest or greatest music, nor do I know everything there is to know about music. What I am is a lover of music. I enjoy several genres of music, and I share with you what has currently caught my interest. Old, new, outdated, and everything in between. Even old music is brand new if you have never heard it before. The universe of music is a vast one to enjoy. From my discussions, you might find something new to you and of interest to expand your own musical universe. I currently receive no compensation or motivation of any kind from any recording label, recording artist, or the estate of any performer or composer, dead and gone, to discuss their music and or recordings. Now with that out of the way, welcome to my musical universe. My guest today is jazz trumpeter Russ Johnson, a recent Midwest replant after spending 23 years as an important member of New York City's jazz community. He has seven recordings as a leader or co-leader and performed on more than 75 recordings as a sideman. Russ has worked alongside many of the legendary figures in jazz, including Lee Konitz, Steve Swallow, Bill Frizzell, and Joe Lovano. In addition, he has recorded and or performed with a long list of the most prominent musicians currently on the international jazz scene, including Myra Melford, Ken Vandermark, and Tony Malaby. Russ has performed in more than 40 countries across the globe. His groups have recently performed at the Chicago, the Winter Jazz Fest in New York City, the Hyde Park in Chicago, and Bergamo, Italy jazz festivals. His most recent recording, Meeting Point on Relay Recordings and Still Out to Lunch on Enya Records, received four and a half and four stars respectively from Downbeat Magazine and appeared on many best recordings of 2014-2015 lists, including Downbeat, the Chicago Tribune, Chicago Reader, New York City Jazz Record, and Magnet Magazine. Russ also released his most recent recording by his Headlands Quartet in 2018. Russ is also active as an educator and clinician, having taught at colleges and universities across the United States and Europe. 
He currently serves as Director of Jazz Studies at the University of Wisconsin Parkside, where he won the university-wide Stella Gray Teaching Excellence Award in 2016. It is my pleasure to welcome to my musical universe, Russ Johnson. Hello, Russ. Hello, Craig. Nice it's to really, see you. It's great to uh, talk with you. Uh, I guess the first question I would ask you is I ask all musicians, uh, but particularly because I'm a trumpet player as well. Uh, as a trumpet player, who turned the light on for you? What turned you on to music and playing the trumpet? Well, I was uh, extremely fortunate. I had an older brother who played the trumpet. And, um, and he, he was a pretty good player. Um, and he wasn't, he, he didn't go on to make a career of it or anything, but it was something that he was interested in in junior high and high school. Um, so I kind of had a model. I was very fortunate. I kind of had a model of what the trumpet was supposed to sound like from when I was, you know, you know, you know people talk about talent all the time and, and, and I almost don't believe in talent. Actually, I don't believe in talent. I think it's all, the vast majority of it's hard work, but um, a lot of that people that we consider talented or whatever, usually have someone that they can model their, their, you know, their musical life after. And, and for my, for me, my brother was a, was a, like a fine trumpet player and, and he studied with, um, I grew up in Racine, Wisconsin, about half an hour south of Milwaukee. And uh, there was an incredible trumpet teacher there. And Johnny Hempkis was a legendary teacher, taught all these amazing Southeast Wisconsin, Northern Illinois trumpet players, guys and, and, and women that went along, and not just trumpet players, horn players, trombone players that went on to amazing careers, New York, LA, all over the world. Um, so, I mean, like I said, my brother was a trumpet player and um, he, you know, I heard him playing all of his exercises and stuff like the Arben's book and Clark and all that stuff. Um, but he was all, he was very much into music. And he, um, like I said, he wasn't making a career of it. He was a, a military guy for his career. He went in mm -hmm. at, at 18, but, but he was, he was enthusiastic about it. And so he really like turned me on to, on to trumpet playing and music. And he had a record collection, you know? So I was, you know, I'm talking like eight or nine and my brother was five years older than I was. So um, he was in junior high and high school and he had a record collection. He had Miles Davis, Kind of Blue and Sketches of Spain. And this was the seventies. So there was, you know, Chick Corea, Ladies of Feather, Herbie Hancock, Headhunters and all those things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the Brecker Brothers, Heavy Metal Bebop. So, you know, I kind of, heard this music coming through the speakers in my brother's room. Okay. Um, so yeah, I mean, and then, you know, like there were, there was performance. I remember, I think I was in seventh grade, seventh or eighth grade and Clark Terry came to Racine and played at Horlick High School. And I remember going to that show and, and going, whoa, I like that. I don't know what that is, but I really, really like it. Mm -hmm. So that was like another one of those experiences. That was, you know, you talk about the light bulb or whatever. That was one of those things where I heard, you know, incredible trumpet playing, incredible musicianship, incredible mm -hmm. improvisational skills. And so that was kind of like a moment for me. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I can I can relate. I remember uh, one time hearing Clark Terry in a, well, I grew up in Idaho and mm -hmm. uh, Clark Terry came for a jazz festival. It was at... Uh, the College of Idaho, which was a small uh, liberal arts college uh, outside of Boise, 
But of course, we were hungry for anything uh, that had to do with jazz. And uh, my first exposure to jazz was uh, the Stan Kenton Orchestra in 1972. And when I heard that, I thought, I mean, it literally blew my hair back and it's still there. <laughs> and when I heard that, I thought, man, that is that's incredible. But I uh, I've always uh, uh, kind of, uh, you know, vacillated. I love classical trumpet as well. And and uh, and you talk about Arbins and Clarks and 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 I still love pr uh, practicing, you know, various scales and etudes and exercises and things from those from those books and i think that's a lot of fun but you know you mentioned clark terry and uh, and needing a model and i know clark terry always had a really famous quote and i remember he used it in this clinic that i attended oh many years ago and he said first you imitate then you innovate and so you know we always uh, Assimil assimilate is in the middle of that Oh, imitate, I forgot. Imitate, You're right. Assimilate, imitate, assimilate, innovate. You're absolutely right. Thank you for for correcting me. Yeah, that's a great quote. It's a three-legged stool, and I forgot one of the legs. But I guess he must have used that everywhere he went, since you heard it in a different place than I did. Uh, but uh, Clark Terry was uh, was an amazing uh, person. Not not only great player, but just a really sweet guy, as I recall. He. He took time to talk to us and, and so on. That was that was really great. Well, you know, you're a jazz educator and and as I am. And and uh, so I'm, I'm curious as to what your answer is to this question. You know, jazz comes in so many different flavors now. I mean, uh, and so I want to ask you, you know, what is jazz? And you can't give me Louis Armstrong's answer that if you have to ask you'll never know uh but what i'm really interested in is what your viewpoint is about what is the essence of jazz across all of its very various flavors and how is it different from other styles of music well i mean first things first it's black american music okay. um, it is you know the jazz was created by black musicians uh, you know, everybody, you know, kind of acknowledges coming from New Orleans or the surrounding area. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, so that has to be acknowledged right away. The creators and founders of this music were, were, were black men and black women. Um, so, I mean, you know, there are, there are many different thoughts in this. Some people call it um, black American classical music. Um, you know, there's a whole movement of jazz musicians. A lot of jazz musicians didn't really like the term or don't like the term jazz. So there's a movement of musicians that want, want it to be called Black American music. And I have absolutely no problem with that. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, defining it is, is um, a challenge. Um, and especially, I mean, the music is, the recorded history is over 100 years old now, right? It's 103 years old or 104 years old um, of recorded jazz. And obviously the music was around for 15, 20 years at least before, before there were any recordings. Mm -hmm. and, and like any music that, you know, classical music, the, the definition of classical music has evolved greatly over the course of its history and, and the same thing with jazz. So, there, it, you know, I like, I like how you put it, 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 all the different flavors. There are so many different um, mm -hmm. you know, musics that we, that fall under the jazz umbrella today. So, um, 
I mean, there, I think improvisation plays a huge role um, in what we identify as jazz, but not all jazz had improvised, you know, improvised solos, you know, and Louis Armstrong was somebody who, who would repeat himself. Mm -hmm. There were certain phrases that he really liked and, um, you know, and Fats Navarro was a trumpet player, jazz trumpet player that, you know, if you listen to um, alternate takes, he plays a lot of very similar things. But the idea of, of, of creativity within the music, of improvisation within the music, um, I think it's, you know, there's a certain sound to the music. Um, how, you are, how you want to define that is, is kind of up to you. Um, but it's, it's music, like I said, it's constant, the, the definition is constantly evolving, constantly changing. Um, a lot of music that I do has, in a, and I'm not the only one, a lot of musicians are playing today has influences of a lot of different musics, right? I mm -hmm. love classical music too. I love music. For, I grew up in, in the 70s, so I listened to Parliament Funkadelic, you know, mm -hmm. oh, yeah. Brown, Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, you know, and, and so all of that music, all those musics played a role in, in, in my outlook on music. And so I think it's, it's, it's something that, you know, like defining it is really, <laughs> really dif difficult. Um, how is it different than other styles? I would say there's, you're, you're much more, you're given more room to be creative and to be individualistic. Let's say that rather than in okay. some other where you're expected, if you're sitting in the Chicago Symphony, you're expected to play this this way based on historical context. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not the way, I mean, I wish, I, you know, you were given that Clark Terry quote. There's a really great Wayne Shorter quote, and I don't remember it off the top of my head, but the gist of the quote is that, uh, you know, I, I, don't, I don't want to be able to find it because it's basically this ever evolving thing, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so for me, like I said, it's, it, there's, it's a huge un umbrella. There's, you know, I play a lot of improvised music, completely improvised music. Mm -hmm. Um, there are jazz elements in that often. Sometimes there are pieces that don't sound like jazz per se. Mm -hmm. They might sound more classical influenced or noise music influenced or something like that. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, like I said, the differences with other styles, I think it allows for more creativity, perhaps, okay. than some some musics. I, I hate general statements like that. Um, it really allows you to be expressive. Um, and if I'm playing, you know, the Haydn or the Hummel trumpet concerto, I'm expected to play it in a certain way. Mm -hmm. and those expectations do not really come as often in a jazz context. So I think it really allows you to be I'll just say it's it's it it can be the ultimate mode of expression for me as a musician. Mm -hmm. I get to be I get to try and bring my personality out. And all great classical musicians or country musicians or reggae musicians, all of them have incredible personalities. I'm not this is not something that's different. But there is that the kind of the weight of history, especially with classical music, that says this is, should sound like this. Yeah, performance and, performance practice. One hundred percent. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, I would share with you uh, just you know as we're conversing a couple of examples of things that really get, got me thinking even more so about about that whole idea. Uh, uh, actually, I just thought of a third. When I when I taught jazz history, I used to tell my students that you can't really clearly black and white 
you know, uh, pigeonhole musical styles of any kind, uh, regardless that, um, but uh, it's rather a degree of jazzness in the music. For example, you can listen to like Steely Dan's Gaucho album. Mm -hmm. Michael Brecker played on that album. And there are certain jazz elements in that music, yet no one would call Steely, J Steely Dan jazz. They might call it fern bar music, but they wouldn't call it jazz. Correct. I, I agree completely. The I other example, completely. yesterday, my wife and I went to the Madison Symphony concert. And they uh, did Wynton Marcellus's Violin Concerto in D. And uh, the uh, entire piece was, I told my wife when it was over, I said, you know, that sounds like, uh, Mar you know, to me, a big combination of like Gershwin because of like the blues and jazzy elements that he put even in like Rhapsody and Blue or Porgy and Bess, you know, things like that. But it sounded to me like kind of a little bit of Gershwin, a little bit of Ives and a little bit of Copeland, you know, that what Marcellus had put into uh, his, his uh, composition. What I also don't know is if there was any open uh, or improvisatory opportunities for the violin soloist, because of course I didn't have a score in front of me, but, uh, uh, but there was a, a wonderful moment in the piece. I'm not, I don't know if you've ever heard it. It was brand new to me yesterday brand new to me yesterday i'd never heard it before but there was a wonderful moment where she was playing a cadenza and then they had a percussionist at a drum set i believe i couldn't really see it really well from where we were sitting but it's almost like you know they were really kind of interacting and it was it was really pretty cool uh but again uh for me to say that you know i mean certainly marcellus brought some jazz elements and blues elements to this music even though we probably wouldn't call it jazz. You know, right. there, was, there was that kind of degree to it. So it's, you know, I, I, I guess that's the way I, I would try to get my students to think critically about all kinds of music that they, they listen to because we can, you know, we might be able to say similar things. And I, I think you're right. Uh, in a lot of ways, I think we and get hung up on trying to categorize things. You know, like when you meet somebody and you get talking, you know, and they have, well, what kind of music do you listen to? And I say, well, I like jazz. Oh, what kind of jazz? Or they already have a preconceived of what idea of what jazz is. And uh, we have we have to kind of straighten them out, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I, I agree 100 percent. It's it's yeah. it's really um, and, and you can't expect everyone to know all musics. Yeah, that's true. I'm not an expert in a lot of different types of music. There's so much music out there that is oh. foreign to me. Um, and, and that's why I will always be a lifelong learner and listener to it. Uh, but, but yeah, there's, there's yeah, the, the, the idea of labels within all types of music. But I find it really challenging as a composer, as a jazz musician, when people, you know, try and put my music into a certain category. Yeah. Uh, you know, well, I know the, th the third thing I thought of, because, you know, after reading your bio, I followed up with some of the people that you have listed that you've played with. And so I've kind of been corresponding with Jamie Baum a little bit. 
And I found the video of you playing with her at the North Sea Jazz Festival. When was that? About 2007, something like that, 2006. I thought it was later than that. Yeah, you know, it might have been, but but I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, anyway you, it might very well might have been. I, I but the important thing that I was impressed with about her music and what kind of inspired me to write to her, and she's going to be a guest on my show as well. Uh, and by the way, she says she 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 mentioned in in her first email how much you are missed. Oh, I, I throw throw that in. But I was very intrigued by the uh, the the piece. And here you have trumpet, alto sax, horn, tabla drums, regular drum set, bass, flute. What an interesting combination of instruments and, and an interesting sound. And uh, and uh, and I thought, you know, here's someone with with ears, big ears in terms of, uh, uh, you know, enlarging the palette uh, of which, you know, she's painting sonically with. And uh, so anyway, that that's the other thing that I, I, I thought about jazz uh, and your talking about it and then an example that comes right back to something you've played on so sure and 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 you know i study in milwaukee um i study um with uh, an indian tabla player i study indian rhythm oh cool, cool. really trying to, to deepen my my knowledge of rhythm so sure um you know it's like jamie's music specifically she's very very much influenced by middle eastern musics okay and she, She's an incredible composer. And the tabla player on that is a dear friend of mine named Dan Weiss. Oh, okay. Is, yeah, Danny's Danny's an incredible musician and just an incredible jazz drummer, but also deeply, deeply, deeply studies Indian classical music. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's that that's why, you know, the definitions are so hard because oh, yeah. her, and her music is, is, is unique. And that's the beautiful thing. And, and I, you know, that's why I love all musics is you, you hear certain people that are really pushing or re not even necessarily pushing, but are, are bringing to life their vision or their whatever the oral <laughs> equivalent is of what they that they hear, you know, and, 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 and there are no boundaries. There really are no boundaries to it. You can, you know, um, you know, and I, I play with a lot of like strange kind of instrument combinations from time to time. I have a new, mm -hmm. uh, a new project uh, that I'm composing for right now with uh, violin, bass and drums. So okay. it's trumpet, violin, front line. Mark Feldman, who's one of the world's greatest violinists is uh, recently moved uh, to Chicago. I knew him okay. in New York and, and he recently moved to Chicago. So as soon as I found that out, I was like, okay, I got, <laughs> I have to play with him. So we got, I got to create a new, a new project, but yeah, there's, you know, there are no instruments that have to be a part of it. It's whatever one can hear, whatever one can imagine is, is possible. And that's a beautiful thing in all, in yeah. all genres of music. No, I, I'm right there with you. I, uh, you know, you, you, you listen to just all, I mean, that's one thing I tried to explain to students one time about how, you know, we hunger for new sounds. We hunger for new timbres. We hunger for, for different combinations. I mean, that's what makes it click for us, why we get uh, hooked into a particular sound. But it's interesting when you talk about studying tabla drums, I have a, I had a quick uh, memory years and years ago when I was in undergrad school, we had Ed Shaughnessy as a guest clinician. Mm 
And it, of course, he studied Indian tabla drumming and, uh, you know, and the uh, rhythmic solfege. And uh, when he played with us, because, of course, we did a concert with him the, the night after he was he was there. Uh, you know, when he did his drum solo, he included the uh, the uh, rhythmic solfege as he played. And it was it was really quite interesting to me. And, and that's what I'm studying. I'm not studying tabla drums at all. I'm studying the the, the solfege. Oh, I'm okay. Studying you know the the conical rhythms, um, but verbally, just okay. to try you know. And, and and I do some of the clapping exercises and stuff like that okay. along with, yeah. But it, it it's it's you know I mean, like there we were talking about improvisation. Indian classical music is all in, completely improvised music, mm -hmm. right? It's completely. Yeah. There, yeah. there might be. There might be a, a platform, a harmonic or melodic platform, right? The raga might be set up as this, being this type of these collection of pitches, you know. But then the music is improvised, and it's, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's well, it's it's, it's you know. I mean, that's why I call my podcast the musical universe because because we encompass everything, or I encompass everything. There isn't a musical style I don't like. I, you know, one just one more thing that I have to share with you is uh, my wife uh, is a, also a wonderful musician and music educator and music as theorist. Pardon? As is mine. Yeah, well, there you have it. You know, I guess, you know, you marry a musician because you can understand what, they, what makes us tick, right? Yep. Uh, but anyway, she's also a recorder player. And uh, so I... Uh, you know, I'm always kind of looking for stuff that I find interesting. And there's a, on YouTube, a regular, uh, her name is Sarah Jeffries, and she's uh, English, but she lives in Amsterdam. And she's always doing these little episodes on, on things you could do with the recorder. So, uh, you know, one of the things she did, she tried, you know, watching one of these turned me on to a jazz recorder player. Uh, but most recently, her episode was on improvisation and talking about improvising. And she had a guest on with her and they said, well, we can improvise in different styles. And they said, we're going to start with the oldest. And they, so we're going to improvise uh, in a medieval style, just over a drone, you know, and, it, you know, it was, it was just really kind of fascinating to me when we think about uh, the fact that in the Middle Ages, the Renaissance, and even sometimes even up to the, Bar the Baroque and, well, classical, uh, uh, the composer, the performer, the improviser were all the same person. I'm sure Bach was an incredible improviser. Yes. Right, because he was, he was the organist at the church in Leipzig, right? So yep. I'm, sure, I'm sure on the holidays when the, the, the church was packed and the collection plate ran long or whatever the equivalent was, I'm sure he was improvising all the time. You know, and he was probably, he was probably, you know, saying, well, you know, instead of doing the same old thing I did before, let's see what this does to him, you know. Exactly. Anyway. Well, I, I I think that's really great to kind of kind of talk about that. My list, you know, a lot of my listeners, I've got the the majority of my listeners are in their late twenties, early thirties, but I also have several you know younger listeners, and we'll we'll get to some things to speak specifically to the people that we deal with professionally. Sure. Uh, but uh, one thing I'm curious to ask you about is. You know, music that has been labeled jazz has been around for over a century. 
And throughout its history, jazz has had its ups and downs and rumors of its death have been gradually or greatly, not gradually, greatly exaggerated. Although jazz is not central necessarily to American popular music, it still exists, it still thrives, it still lives. Why and how has jazz sustained itself? And what is the major challenge? This is a big question for you. What is the major challenge of being a jazz artist in the 21st century? Uh, the challenge is money. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, that's, that's, easy, uh, that's easy to answer. Um, jazz is, will always be a part of, of our culture. And it's part of world culture now. I mean, they're incredible musicians, all jazz musicians all across the globe. Let's keep that, you know, in mind. Yeah. Um, so it's it's you know market share or whatever you want to say, the popularity that doesn't the people that want to become jazz musicians usually are not concerned with those things. Right. Right. It's mm -hmm. because you fall in love with this music. Yeah. However, in whatever guise it is taking in 2022 or 1970 or whatever, whatever it is, you fall in love with something in the music and, and, and that kind of pulls you in. So I, I have no doubt that, and, and, and I think the creative spirit in all the arts has been, you know, um, will live, will, will keep evolving. We'll, we'll, we'll always keep evolving. So I have, I have no worries that the, the music will die. I, I really don't. It will look different, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Right? It will evolve. Right. But the elements that we're talking about, that that I that desire to be creative, especially in the moment creative, mm -hmm. will always appeal to a certain type of artist. Right. And those artists are drawn to jazz, typically. I, I agree. It, right that 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 idea because i mean you know you're out there on a tightrope and you, you can fall off quite easily some people love that some people are completely petrified of that i love that i love living on that tightrope i love living on the edge i love not knowing what's coming next so there will always be and i mean if you look at you know i mean hieronymus bosch the painter his music, his, I mean, he was so far ahead of his time. It looks, you know, he's 300 years ahead of his time when you look at his, his work, right? Yeah. I mean, you, you know, it's just, so there are always going to be artists that are, that are interested in this idea of, of creativity. All artists are into, mm -hmm. interested in creativity, but people that are, that are really want to live, live their lives in that creative way. So um, I have no doubt that this music will continue to, exist and and not only exist but thrive i'll say this the mu jazz musicians that are playing today are unbelievably great the what is expected of a jazz musician today is completely different 2022 than 1983 when i graduated high school it's a completely different set of expectations rhythmically harmonically everything keeps evolving right which is a beautiful thing um that can be daunting as well <laughs> you know it's just you know the, the musicians that are air quotes making it today are playing music on an unbelievably high level and are 
artists that are on on the level of any of the great artists you can mention in the past. Really, I, I mm -hmm. firmly believe that. Just because the way that we're expected to deliver, <laughs> you know, when we're playing, like, I when when I was a kid, I'm I'm 56. When I was a kid, up until my early 20s. I was not expected to play really in odd meters. Once in a while, you'd play bluesette or a, a up jump mm -hmm. tune in three, four, maybe in five, right? Now, as a musician that's coming up today, you're expected to play in in odd meters like it's like in four, four, mm -hmm. right? And I worked very hard to do that. And I'm very happy that I did. Um, that was kind of my ticket into like my career, actually, because I, I, you know, I was a little older, but I could actually, I figured out like, oh, I need to work on this kind of thing. So um, what, as far as what it's, what it's going to look like and what are the challenges, the challenges, it, you, 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 how, do I, how do I say this? It's not like there, there will always be people that will make a very good living playing jazz too. Right. Like I, when, when students, you know, when, when people run want to run away from it, I, 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 the first thing I say, it's totally possible. Mm -hmm. It's 100% possible to make your living as a jazz musician, right? Mm -hmm. It is entirely possible. And, and we hear all the time that, oh, you can't do it, you can't do it. Now it's going to look perhaps differently than it did in the 50s and 60s when you were playing 200 to 300 nights out of the year. That doesn't exist. Like, let's mm -hmm. keep it real. That does not exist, mm -hmm. right? Most jazz musicians, many, most, are educators on some level as well. Yep. Including very famous, you know, um, musicians. And I will say this, being an educator has helped me become a better musician too, right? Mm -hmm. Looking, analyzing, figuring out three or four different ways to try and get that same message across forces me to analyze and really dig deeply into how and why this works or how I need to explain this, this element of music. So the challenges, as I said, and it wasn't a flippant comment, is money. Right? That's, mm -hmm. the challenge. Yeah. That's the challenge, right? Because, you know, jazz musicians and all musicians tend to sell ourselves short uh, when it comes to expectations with money. Um, but that doesn't have to be the case. We don't have to treat it that way. Mm -hmm. Now, I, and I'm just, you know, people that know me personally know I, I, I live my life by a code of honesty. I, I believe in being brutally honest with people. Um, I will play music that I love for no or very little money. Mm -hmm. if, it's, if it's music that I don't love, I have to get paid. And sometimes yeah. I price myself out and I'm okay pricing myself out. Sure. If, I, if, if it's a gig that I don't wanna do, I'll say, I need this much money. And they'll say, we oh, can't do that. I'll say, yeah. Oh, you know, so so the, the financial thing is always going to be part of it, but there there are ways of making. You know, I became an educator at forty five. I never had a job other than playing the trumpet from age nineteen until I was forty five mm -hmm. when I started teaching at UW Parkside eleven years ago. Twelve now it's twelve years ago this month. Um, so I totally made it, and I made a pretty good living. I was touring mm -hmm. a ton. I was internationally as well as nationally. I was you know um, making a lot you know recording a lot of records and stuff and my own and as a side note with a lot of groups so it's totally possible but it's going to be one of these things where you're going to have to draw from different income sources and stuff like that mm -hmm. so one thing I, I when i talk to students is is like i can't tell you what it's going to look like 10 years from now i can guess 
but you know, in 1995, nobody saw streaming. That's right. Right. Nobody saw that, you know, and I still get royalties, not much, but I still get royalties from record sales. Mm-hmm. They're not much because people don't buy music anymore. And that's a whole nother podcast. Oh yeah. But, but there, there are always ways to, to generate income and there are always ways. And, you know, if you want to be a purist and say, I'm only going to play this music exactly how I want to play it, then you might have to supplement with a day job or something like that. Yeah. If you want to be versatile, there are always going to be gigs. Always, yeah. always, always. Now you may have to do this one day and this the next day and this the next day. And so that versatility can, is, is required. Right? Yeah. There oh, no, so, I, 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 I'm right there with you. I'm right there's there with so you. many incredible jazz musicians that are playing Broadway shows. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, I yeah. was on that, I was on that path. Like mm-hmm. when I was living in New York, right at, shortly after I moved to New York, I, I, w- I started subbing on Broadway and I did national tours and I did European tours and stuff like that. And I remember I was um, in the pit at Fosse, which was a, a show. And mm-hmm. I was just shadowing the book for a friend of mine, a really great jazz trumpet player. And I remember sitting in the pit going, I did not move to New York to play Broadway shows. Mm-hmm. I moved to New York to play creative music. Mm-hmm. And, and at the end of the thing, I was shadowing. He's like, well, we'll have you one more time to shadow. And then you can come in and sell blah, blah, blah. We'll get you on the list. And I handed him the book back and I was like, thank you, man. I really appreciate it. But, but I, don't, I don't think I want to do this. Mm-hmm. And that was the last time I stepped foot into a, a Broadway pit. But that, the Broadway pits are filled with incredible musicians. Oh, yeah. Incredible yeah. musicians, including incredible jazz musicians. So you may, that may be how you make your living. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you do your projects where you, your, your creative side comes out. So it's, you know, the challenges are always going to be financial. Um, I, I'll say this, like, I do a steady Tuesday night in, in, in Milwaukee at, a, at a, a bar called the Uptowner, which is the oldest bar in the state of Wisconsin, continuously serving alcohol, even through the pro, pro, prohibition, right back to the like 1870s or something. And it's not a jazz club. Mm-hmm. It's a bar. And it's a great bar. And the audience that comes in there, some people are coming in to listen to music because they know every Tuesday night there's going to be a trio, Dave Bayless's trio. Sure. Um, and some of them are just locals. And you could hear a pin drop, mm-hmm. including the locals who you would think have nothing to do with this music, but they, they're there and they hear it and they go and they, it gets quiet and they're like, whoa, this is, and I have people coming up to me all the time. This is amazing. Right. So, um, that's why I don't, I think there will always be, people know when you're going for it. People know when you're doing something creative. They may not love it, right? Not everybody's, I don't love everything I hear. I think sure. it would be awful if I did, right? But they're, they're that's why I don't think, I, 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 I mean, I worry, I worry about it. I, I, should, no, I don't worry about it because I think there will always be music out there that is jazz based that will, will, will speak to people. People understand. Yeah understand that you're that it's you it's not you recreating something now the market may not be huge but there will always be an audience for that right i'm an audience for that in other genres in other sure. types of art and other types of literature right the people that the obscure writer that nobody's you know that you know doesn't sell a ton of books or i happen to love or whatever so that's sure. i think i think you know there there'll always be creative people so there'll always be listeners yeah you know i uh I, uh, I had an interview a couple of weeks ago with uh, 
uh, vibraphonist, uh, Ben Gleese. And um, who's, uh, he lives in Jersey, but he plays a lot in New York and Philadelphia. And uh, we got talking about this, you know, this kind of, there's also the self-sustaining culture of jazz, which sometimes is made up of other jazz musicians, because let's face it, we not only love the music, but we also love the hang. 100%. Because we love hanging with other people, other musicians who dig what we dig, right? Yes. And so, and so, yeah, I'll go play in, uh, like I have a friend of mine who has a big band that plays down at Muskego twice a month and every once in a while I'll go sub. Do I make any money? Yeah, I might make five bucks because we just divvy up what comes in the tip jar. But I wouldn't exchange anything for the time spent during the breaks, just hanging with the other you know, cats from the band, you know. Crucial, crucial, crucial to the development of, of musicians. Yeah. I tell yeah. that to my students all the time. If, if, if I don't see you hanging out, I, I'm not taking you seriously. Yeah, well, I mean, and that's the other thing because we, we also want to help go out and support each other and, yeah. and we listen to each other and, and that sort of thing. And that's an important part of the culture is, as well. So I, yeah, I'm really, uh, you know, I, I'm, kind of, I'm very much in that same boat. And of course I have the, the good fortune of the fact that I'm retired now, uh, semi-retired from the UW system. And of course the UW system has a great retirement package and I'm, and I'm enjoying every aspect of it. And I, Congratulations. The, well, thank you. And the part that I enjoy the most is that after a wait, after I retired, after a waiting period, they could hire me back part time. So I'm still have my fingers in it. I still, you know, but uh, but it can enjoy the the uh, the benefits of retirement. So when I go out, when I take my band out to play, sometimes I'll play free just so my sidemen can get some decent bread, you know because uh, uh, I'm not that concerned about the money. You know, I mean, I, I, you know, and this is a dirty little secret. When you're playing a club in New York and you're the band leader, you lose money almost all the time. I don't doubt it. I yeah, don't because doubt thing, it. You're, you know, it's because you respect the other musicians. You're going to yeah. make sure that they, just what you just said, you're going to, you're going to make sure that they get their, you know, whatever that yeah. number happens to be. And it's, it does, it's not a lot in the grand scheme of things, but, but it's the respect you have for their, not only talent or whatever, their ability, desire to make music with you. So, yeah. 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 That's the way I, it's the way I look at it, you know? So, so I, I think that's great. Well, let's uh, uh, change gears just for a little bit. Uh, I, what I'm curious, I want to kind of get to your creative side as a musician and composer. And would you talk about your various approaches um, to the elements of music that you may take to create different colors and forms of musical expression. And I put that in this backdrop. When I taught jazz history, I, and I would teach about Duke Ellington, I would tell my students that Ellington grew up wanting to be a painter until he got really heavy into music. And that his arrangements were at his writing for the jazz orchestra was effectively him painting on a canvas of silence with uh, a sonic paintbrush. And That's so cre creating all these different, you know, colors. And of course, Ellington also had that 
I don't know if you want to call it a luxury or not, but he had side men that were with him for so long, he really got to know them and he could really write for their musical personalities. Decades. Yeah. Decades. I mean, you know, Harry Carney was the only Barry Sachs player I think he ever had until after he died, right? Well, anyway, so th thinking about musical color and the various elements of music, um, how do you exploit those to create different colors and forms of musical expression to make your music uh, uh, different or unique? Well, that's a really great question. And, and honestly, not one that's easy to answer. So I appreciate okay. that very I, no, I appreciate that very much. Um, texture, right? Ellington was a master, master, master of creating texture, right? I do not work in, I do not create in large, I don't say I shouldn't work. I don't create large ensemble music, mm -hmm. right? So I'm, my palette is perhaps smaller to trio, mm -hmm. quartet, quintet, right? It's so it's it's in in that that sense in some ways and you have the timbre of the instruments that you're dealing with. You're I look for that creative spark in in you know Ellington ever did everything if, if <laughs> did everything you ever need to know about arranging if you just study Ellington and just study his orchestration everything is there <laughs> like pretty much everything in, in in a jazz context is 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 within Ellington's and you could just literally listen from you know the late 20s until the Bland Webster band and, and 42 and everything you need to know is there right it's a, just a, a textbook mastery of the craft of composition and texture 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 so for me I, I, I may not have the same kind of if I'm using like quartet for example I'm not going to have the same opportunities for textural change in with regards to instrument choices right i can use mutes i can use you know interesting combinations i have this band that i'm doing now with violin i had another quartet with bass clarinet those are maybe some not obvious choices um i was in a band that was trumpet saxophone that i co-led trumpet saxophone guitar and drums no bass so there were texturally it was a different sound it was a little more open sound right you didn't have that foundational thing on the bottom now what i try and do is is create interest maybe perhaps in form okay right and that can take that can you know that's up to my creativity um i i almost never write traditional song forms as a lot of jazz a lot of jazz standards are tin pan alley tunes right so they were they right. may have had a verse and then 32 bar aaba tunes or whatever that form right. formal structures that are pretty common 12 bar blues I almost never work in those. Mm -hmm. I don't compose in those ways. It's just it's and it's it's been done way better than I will ever do it. And and uh, you know I don't want to say I'm not interested in that because I'm interested in those things as an improviser, but as a composer mm -hmm. I'm not. Right. I understand. So I, I I try I try and work different. You know I, I mean I try and find unique things. Like also in my the way I compose music, oftentimes there will be different solo forms or even if even if they're open different kind of zones for the different improvisers when they have their space I, I it's rare that i have like here's the form 
we're all going to take solos over this form. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't, it's really rare that, that I do that mm-hmm. because I like to create interest within a composition. Um, it, like I said, because I don't have this palette of 15 pieces I'm working with, I'm working with four or five, three, four or five, I have to find these other ways of creating interest. So for me, the interest comes from, okay, and, and, and I, 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 I compose in a way that and I, I'm not the only one calling this, but kind of modular so that the way this, the solo sections work is that like, it's not always the violin tr- solo over this or the trumpet solo over this or the saxophone solo over this, right? We, and it's not like, okay, tonight you're going to play this, you're going to play this, you're going to play this, right? I try and write compositions so that, that there's, we're not always playing over the same forms. You know, different performances of the song will have different solos playing over, yeah, different solos playing over different whatever structures. So it's, you know, and the other thing that I try and do in, in, with this, with the elements is, you know, I was talking about growing up with other musics. And this took me a long time to get to. I'm trying really hard not to deny the influence of other musics. Because I was so worried about being unique and being cool and being hip and being creative and not doing anything like anybody else. I think oftentimes I would ignore and I do this and I'm guilty of this in my playing as well and it's something that I don't like about my playing um I would ignore the obvious sometimes okay (laughs) right as an improviser too like I would hear something really strongly but I would be like oh man everybody's played that I don't want to play that and I would deny it right because you don't want to be a cliche I don't want to be yeah and I you know uh, you know if you know my history I played with some master master improvisers um who really believed in not playing cliches so that rubbed off on me um, so I, I'm trying to not, not, um, if, 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 if inspiration comes to me, um, that sounds like a funk tune or a rock tune or a acidic tune or a Balkan tune or something, I'm trying not to, to say no to it. I'm trying to embrace right. it. Sure. Say, you know what? This is what this is. Cool. Let's make some music with this. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it, it's so it's it's I mean, like I said, your question is really it's a great one that that I've never been asked before. I've done a lot of interviews, a lot of podcasts, and I've never been asked about about it in this okay. way. And it's, it, and, and it's it's really it's fascinating because, it you know, this just the question, the way you pose it forces me to be creative in, an, in coming up with an answer. You're improvising. Like, I'm improvising, right? <laughs> yeah. but, but, but that's, and that's how I want to live sure. 24, 365 sure. until the day I pass, right? Right. So, yeah. So it's, you know, like I said, I'm trying not to deny influences, but the idea is, is, is the creativity um, is going to come in, 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 in form. And, and also I do, you know, I practice a lot of extended technique mm-hmm. um, things for the trumpet, you know, extended techniques for the trumpet. So, I think that is one of my strengths is I have, you know, we talked about texture. I can play with a very straight, what I think is a straight, beautiful trumpet sound. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love my sound. My sound is the reason I have a career, right? Mm-hmm. I have a pretty nice trumpet sound. I mess with that sound texturally all the time. I love muse. I love muse. I love getting those different, you know, and I love messing with mutes. I've altered mutes, you know, I'll buy four Harmon mutes and I'll drill holes in them in certain spots. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> now that I haven't tried yet. 
Yeah, and I insert rivets and stuff like that. And you know, I mean, you know, like I'm I'm always looking for these other these other sounds. So for me, because I'm working with a smaller palette perhaps than working with a jazz ensemble of 15, I look for those different textural things in mm-hmm. my sound. And I also am drawn to other musicians who have that same desire, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Most of the musicians I play with have a huge palette of sounds to choose from. And right. that opens everything up for me as a composer and as an improviser, right? Mm-hmm. I rely on other people's greatness. <laughs> I'm not gonna, you know, there's there's the key to, you know, to having a good project, get great players. <laughs> no, sure. But, <laughs> you, know, you know, it's interesting when you, when you talk about being able to switch gears. I remember uh, years and years ago, I don't think he does it much anymore, but, you know, Bobby Shue had that custom-made shoehorn. Shoehorn, yeah. And he would put a Harmon mute in one bell, and then he'd leave the other bell open. And then, of course, he would just go, I think it was the fourth valve, to switch between, you know, the, the horns. And I thought, you know, or not the I, horns, but the bells. I bought an echo cornet. Yeah, that. I have one, too. I bought, I literally bought an echo cornet for yes. that reason. Yeah. yeah, it's really an interesting sound. I know I I bought one. Well, I bought uh, uh, where did I find it? Amazon, I think. Me too. Yeah, and Probably it was really it was really inexpensive, made in India or something. Yeah, but it yeah. still works, and it's really cool to fool with. It is. And uh, and my end of it is I I like fooling around with uh, electronic modifications. Right. Like uh, uh, I put my. Uh, my Yamaha silent brass doohickey in and then I run that through a through a, a modulator and it's just it's really kind of interesting but you know to look for different sounds but I'll tell you the other thing that has intrigued me what I've been listening to a lot here today and yesterday and day before is a recording of a bass player with a quartet by the name of Peter Brendler yes I know. do you know Peter, Peter? okay yeah, yeah. No, great, great guy. Great guy. We've corresponded. He's going to be a guest on my show uh, in a in a few weeks as well. But what really got me was uh, his quartet doing Lou Reed's Walk on the Wild Side, mm-hmm. which, of course, is not a standard song form. Right. And and when the way that they do it. The only way that you would recognize it that as Walk on the Wild Side, of course, is the opening bass riffs. Uh-huh. because Lou Reed's original was paid, played by acoustic bass, electric bass that created tense, I think it was. You recognize it from that. And then that refrain that, uh, you know, comes back after each uh, uh, verse. Uh, and the way that Peter did it with his quartet, it's almost like, okay, here's the song, but all we're going to do is just kind of reach in and grab the essence because you never hear the actual head you never hear any lyrics you never hear anything that would you know identify the tune itself other than when the horns just come in with that little do you know which is that refrain i think it's just the coolest thing the other thing the trumpet player is playing on pick peter evans yeah yeah peter and and i could hear that and i love the way that he would bend and kind of smear around to get different sounds you know and i and i had i wrote right back to peter i said yeah i just listened to that i said is that is the trumpet player playing pick because it sounds very you know very much like that so that was really a you know that's kind of a nice 
head opening experience for me this week. I've really enjoyed it. And I agree. Yeah, with, I mean, I, I mean, one of the things I'm gassed by is Balkan music. You mentioned Balkan music and uh, there is uh, a wonderful documentary out there about the uh, the uh, the trumpet uh, they call it a trumpet festival that they have in in Serbia. Mm -hmm. I cannot remember the name of the now. I own it. I've got it in my collection someplace. Please please send it to me when you find that. Please. Oh sure, you'd love yeah. it. You'd love it. Sure but would. but the thing that is is uh, of course understanding that brass band tradition in the Balkans and the differentiation between what they call the black version of the music, which is that made by the Romani mm -hmm. versus the, the, the white version, which is more of the, the uh, Caucasian uh, 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 Serbians. And uh, I'll, uh, yeah, I'll look that up. I'll email you the name of it because uh, you'd love it. It's I'm just, sure uh, and, and it follows, it follows a, uh, a Balkan brass band from New York that goes to participate in the festival. Slavic soul party? Uh, no, no. Uh, 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 I'll think of it in a minute. Uh, the translation is golden lips. I don't remember what it is in, in Serbian, but that's what it translates to in English. Cool. Uh, but uh, it's it's really wonderful, and they talk about that whole tradition. And I corresponded with with them because I was interested in kind of digging out. Uh, you know, I love Balkan music, I love klezmer music, I love all those kinds of kinds of sounds. Uh, and uh, so it was really uh, kind of a happy occurrence to learn more about it. But I'll I'll send that to you as soon as I remember the name of the movie. Because you'd really enjoy it. But let's get back to, um, you know, when you write, what really motivates you to write music? Uh, <laughs> I wish this were different. You know what motivates me is a deadline. A deadline. I wish that were not the case. Yeah. Um, yeah but that is how I work. Um, yeah. I keep, I keep, I'm constantly, like I have sketchbooks everywhere of, okay. of ideas and i have i sing into my phone almost daily sure uh, sing ideas and stuff into my phone um but <laughs> the, the the actual motivation to 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 get it down on paper comes when i have a deadline i'm a project by project composer sure like i said i wish that i wish that, that were not the case now i think that in some ways is a strength because i'm only for writing for that one band at that time and I'm hyper focused on those individuals and what their strengths are and what they're, you know, what I think they would sound great doing or what would not work. So I think that that provides me with, you know, um, inspiration in a way. But, you know, you know, I mentioned Wayne Shorter earlier. He, you know, he's somebody that gets up and composes every day. I'm not mm. that person. I'm okay. not that person. Uh, I wish I were. <laughs> uh, but but I, I really, you know, like. This, this new group that I was talking about, that I, we have a string of gigs coming up at the end of February. And I booked three gigs and then started writing the music. Yeah, sure. Because you've got the pressure, you've got to have something there. I got to have something there. And yeah, I'm still, I hear you. I hear you. I, as soon as we're done here, I'm going to go back to working on that because I, yeah. I, have, I have work to do. So, um, yeah, the motivation, it's the, what motivates me are the other musicians, really. I mean, that's really yeah. what it is. It's like, sure. 
like, you know, I hear somebody and I'm like, I want to play with them. I want them. I can hear them contributing to my music or playing my music, or they would take me out of my comfort zone. I should explore their music and then try and incorporate that into mine. So what I'm really inspired by are, are other musicians. And, you know, I was in New York for 23 years mm-hmm. and I moved back to the Midwest in 2011 and I was welcomed with open arms by the Chicago community and the Chicago oh. scene very strong. Um, so, I mean, I kind of like stepped into it right away I was really fortunate. Um, so like, I'm totally inspired by the musicians that I play with, right? That's really where the inspiration comes from. But as far as the, uh, the nuts and bolts, I, like I said, I'm, I'm I'm somebody who gets a deadline and then finishes it way too, way too (laughs) short before that deadline. Yeah. Well, I tell you, Russ, you're not alone. Right. I, 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 a lot of, a lot of people I talk to, that's what they say. They need a deadline or they, or, you know, they need some sort of fixed parameter. Yep. Uh, you can't just go to someone and say, write me a piece of music. Oh, what do you want it for? Who yeah, is exactly. it for? You know, yes. I mean, it's just like uh, this violin concerto that went and Marcellus wrote in the, in the, uh, I almost called them liner notes, the program notes. It talked about how, uh what inspired him or what brought him was was this uh uh scottish violinist uh uh nikki benedetti uh who wanted you know worked with him and and uh you know and talked about that whole process of 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 you know how to create something what she wanted and how he responded to what she described and so forth and uh, so i think that's uh you're you're not alone in your in your need there Let's go back to uh, your teaching at the university, for example, uh, and uh, what, you, you know, you've kind of talked about uh, what you tell students as far as making a living as a jazz musician, but uh, not all of your students that you have are necessarily going to become performers or, uh, you know, I, I, I know UW Parkside is 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 because uh, we said we used to send a lot when I taught it in the UW colleges. We used to send a lot of our transfer students to Parkside, and in fact, one of my very best students ever at UW Waukesha is a Parkside graduate. Stephanie Parfit is her name. And she was awesome. You know Stephanie. Yes. She, she was like the best student I ever had. She was uh, uh, you know accepted every challenge I gave her uh and uh was a wonderful intellect and just great student and now she's having a wonderful career as a teacher i'm sure she's an excellent teacher and uh and and ben malone also was a former student of mine and what a great kid super proud of him yeah and uh i uh i uh sent him to you guys uh because uh you know he he wanted to have well, he was leaning towards wanting to play jazz more so than say legit tuba. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, you know, I know they've got a, they've got a good program jazz thing going down a park site, go check it out. So anyway, Thank uh, you. We, well, that's quite all right. You know, I, I've, uh, I've sent uh, students where I think, you know, they will do best. And we take a look at uh, when I advise them, we take a look at things and, and, uh, and try to do the best I can by them. But anyway, in your teaching, 
what do you do to help students prepare for their future? And I'm talking about music students, uh, regardless of whether they go into education or performance or whatever they might do. Um, it's, I, I think in order, in, whether they're education students or if they wanna have a career, they, the ability to play, I believe is very important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, now there are great educators who are not incredible players. There are. Um, I think it's a tougher road to hoe for them because one of the reasons that I feel like I have the respect of my students is because they know I can play. They come to my shows, mm -hmm. right? And they see me playing with world-class musicians and they're like going, oh, maybe he's telling us the truth. <laughs> yeah, he knows what he's talking about. Maybe a little bit, right? Yeah, yeah, so, I hear you. So, so it's, you know, what, what I tell them is try and become the best musician, first mm -hmm. and foremost, the best mm -hmm. musician you become. It will make you a better educator, right? Mm -hmm. The stronger you musician, and I mean, that's not a secret. That's not, you know, that, but, but people are like, well, I'm going to teach them, you know, and I'm like, no, you need to take care of these musical elements. These, these, yeah, these elements that need to be addressed, rhythm, harmony, right? Um, rhythm specifically. I find it, I'm going to say, I said, I'm honest. I find it appalling the way most young musicians are not dealing with rhythm. Yes, no kidding. And and it's and it's it's not their fault to have their back. It's not their fault. And this is because, and this is a problem with the education system. It, and I don't, I'm not necessarily well. I guess I have to fault the teachers. They oftentimes young musicians are not really taught how to really deal with rhythm, specifically reading rhythm. I understand the educator wants their concert to sound good, their Christmas concert. So they just start singing the parts and the kids learn it by ear. I, I have a daughter who's her first year of college. She's not a music major. Her ears were ridiculous, mm -hmm. ridiculous, way mm -hmm. better than mine. My wife's an excellent musician, uh, but my daughter's ears were just like, but she, and I didn't want her going into the family business. I was totally cool with that. But she was like, oh, I read. And I was like, no, you don't. You don't really read well, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? You don't rhythm well. Um, so I find that, that most students really struggle with this. So, you know, when I talk about like preparing for the future, it's take care of this, really take care of this because, you know, you have to earn the respect of your students. Mm -hmm. And most, most Parkside students, very few in numbers are going to actually even desire to go on to have a professional playing career. Most of them are, are, are education majors, right? Mm -hmm. And that's cool. I love working with those students. And I, it, I really love working with those students because I want to make, help make them the best musician they can be so that when they go out into the world as a teacher, they have some stuff that they can offer, right? So my advice is really, you know, become the best musician you can. One thing that I'm very proud of at Parkside is, is I guess about four or five years ago now, um, I went to the department and I said, I wanna work with every major, with every music major. Mm -hmm. And I want, at, at UW Parkside, in order to get a music degree, you have to take the fundamentals of improvisation with okay. me, with me, right? <laughs> now, it becomes a basic theory course, mm -hmm. right? They've already taken classical theory, mm -hmm. um, but, 
I like I use a lot of pop music examples and stuff like that. And I and I really, really, really it, 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 it's under the guise of improvising. Sure. I want them to be at least have some fundamental understanding of what improvisation is. And but that comes in most part if you have to have a fundamental understanding of harmony uh, in most contexts, not all, but in most contexts, you know, you know, so. I'm extremely proud that I, my department was like, sure, let's make that a requirement. So it's a requirement of all of our students to do that. So I get to work with each student, which I, I value that very highly. So I have the choir people, I have the string players, I have everybody at one point, at least for one semester, I get them all, you know, where I can talk to them about, and it's really a musicianship course. So when I talk about preparing for the future, be the best musician that you can be, and that will transfer into your teaching. And you will have the respect of your students because the students, because if you don't have it together and you have that two or three or one or five students that really do have it together and they notice that you don't have yep. your stuff yep. together, yep. Yep. believe me, they're going to let the other students know, mm -hmm. this is, you know, so, I mean, you know, when I talk about preparing for their future, it's become the best musician you can be, right? Yeah. Devote the time to really becoming the best musician you can be a lot will fall into place if you become the best musician you can be. That, that is awesome advice, Russ. I, 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 and I agree with you 100%. I've always, I've told my students, the, the biggest, the, the, the most important gift that you can give your students as an educator is by being a good musician yourself, a great musician, the best musician that you can be. Yeah. And I think that's, that's great. Well, I just have a couple more questions and we'll wrap cool. things up because uh, we've been at this for over an hour. I mean, it's cool, but you okay. know, I, uh, anyway, correct me if I'm wrong, but your last or your latest release was with your Headlands Quartet in 2018. Correct. Yeah. So do you have any new recording projects planned or in the works? I have three projects that I need to record. Okay. <laughs> COVID has put a, is derailed. Yeah, a yeah, yeah. Um, so I have a quartet with New York musicians mm -hmm. um, that uh, piano quartet, trumpet, piano, bass, and drums that that I desperately need to record. I think it's I think it's my strongest compositional project. Um, I did I spent a lot of time composing for that group. Um, I have a group, two groups in Chicago. One uh, with Greg Ward, incredible saxophonist, Clark Summers on bass, Dana Hall on drums, like the best cats in Chicago. Mm -hmm. um, and we need to record that. And then I have this new project that I was talking about with Mark Feldman on violin, uh, Ethan Fillion on bass and Tim Daisy on, on, on drums, percussion really. Um, he's using a multitude of percussion instruments. So I have three projects that I need to record. Um, yeah, it's, it's, you know, and it's always finding the money to do it. Uh, but but yeah. I will I will have something new released in 2023 for sure. I have I think I have some dates lined up uh, to record in May or June. Okay. Uh, so yeah, I mean I'm I'm Super. constantly I'm constantly you know constantly you know composing for those groups and 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 I do I I I do want to document them because I feel I feel very strongly about all of them. Sure. Well, that's great. I'm, I'm happy to hear about that because we'll look forward to hearing some uh, new music, uh, you know, coming out of you. And that's, uh, that's really great. Well, Russ, the last question I have to ask you, is there anything else you would like to add or tell my audience that I haven't asked you about? Um, 
I do have a request of your audience. Um, okay. And that is support the arts in what, whatever way you possibly can. Um, music, all of the arts. I mean, I'm a musician, obviously. Support the arts. Uh, that means going to events or shows. That means buying things, right? Um, there are incredible artists out there in all different mediums that, that are worthy of support. Um, poets, playwrights, painters, multimedia artists, musicians, right? That just, you know, it's, it's so, but we were talking about the hang before. The hang is everything. And I try and not just hang with musicians. I try and hang with other artists as well. I wish I did it more. Now my pool is musicians mostly because I, you know, I'm a musician, but, yeah. but that, that, that idea of exploring other arts, I think is really important. Read, read as much as you can, whenever you can listen to as many different types of music, but the, yeah, I mean, your questions are fantastic. So the, the, the last, I mean, yeah, just support the arts in whichever, whatever way you can. If you have it financially, support them financially. If you have it spiritually, go there and be a great part of the hang. I love meeting people in, in clubs, right? Like that's really important. Go see the Madison Symphony. Go, see, go to the local bar where they have this happening. Go to the art gallery that's showing this new young artist that you've never heard of before, mm -hmm. you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's up to us. It really is up to us to, to support. So yeah, just, I mean, that's, that's the last thing, just support the sure. arts in, in whatever way you possibly can. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, you know, preaching to the choir here. I mean, I know that. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's part of the reason I do this podcast. I started it, of course, uh, over a year ago because rehearsals and performances were basically curtailed and a colleague of mine asked me one one time what are you listening to these days and um, and that plus the last two three years I taught full-time I taught uh, online courses that went out across the state so I I bought this real snarky audio technique of microphone so I'd get good sound through my right. computer I was sitting here one day and saw it sitting there and I thought you know that great microphones going to waste. I'll start a podcast and be an educator, but in a different way. And, uh, and I purposefully will seek out uh, musicians that are, you know, I, I would make no headway whatsoever interviewing Taylor Swift. Right. <laughs> so I want people to discover lesser known people who are just as competent, just as adequate, just as have something important to say. So I'm right there with you. There's so many ways you can support the, the arts uh, with your pocketbook and beside your pocketbook and support music education. For sure. I'm, I'm right there with you. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so unbelievably important. Yeah, um, it is. And I'm not, you know, most people that are listening to this podcast know the test, you know, test scores of people that study music across the board are higher. It's not about the test scores. It's about creating p lifelong listeners, lifelong readers, lifelong appreciators, if that's a word, of the arts. Of, yep. of it's, it's just, it, yes. Critical thinkers and cre yeah. creative thinkers, creative problem solvers. Yes. Yep. yep. Yeah. Those buzzwords. Those are the buzzwords. That, those that, those that. are the buzzwords. Well, you know, it's like, like one of the classes I used to teach 
was called uh, Creative Thinking and Problem Solving. And it was not an accident uh, that I had a lot of musical examples to use. Uh, of course, being a musician and coming from a musical background. And uh, so, you know, because I think in music, as the other arts, we're constantly uh, creatively solving problems, whether it's how to properly resolve a note that maybe we shouldn't have played when we were improvising and still make it sound good, or, you know, how to rearrange a particular standard so it sounds different. I think all those kinds of things are, are great for us. But, you know, Russ, I so appreciate you taking time. Uh, I really think the, you know, the, the world of you and, and I want to thank you for taking time to talk with me today. And I certainly want to wish you all the best uh, with the continued uh, successful musical future and i look forward to when uh, our paths cross again maybe we'll uh we'll kyle will hire us to play another big band gig and we'll sit at opposite ends of the section again if you're if you're free on tuesday nights i play at the uptowner in milwaukee i might just just come on out and hang yep. all and right great all right. thank you so much for having me i appreciate it very much craig you bet my discovery composer of the week is Dmitry Bortniansky. Born in 1751 in Lukiv, Ukraine, he died in 1825 in St. Petersburg. Bortniansky began his musical training early, possibly at the Lukiv Choir School, and in 1758 went to sing in the Russian Imperial Court Chapel in St. Petersburg where he became one of Empress Elizabeth's favorite choir boys. Singled out for his unusual talent, he was trained in opera and eventually performed major roles in court productions. He studied composition with Galuppi. In 1769, after Galuppi had left for Venice, Catherine the Great sent Bortniansky to further his studies there with Galuppi. His first extant compositions date from his years in Italy. He composed three opera seria that included several settings of Roman Catholic texts, including an Ave Maria in 1775, a Salve Regina in 1776, and a multi-movement Gloria. His setting of the entire Catholic Mass Ordinary in German, Nemskaya Obednya, the German liturgy, may have also originated during this period. In 1779, Bortniansky was recalled to the Russian court. In 1783, Catherine the Great awarded Bortniansky as Kapellmeister to her son Paul at the Lesser Court. Until 1796, Bortniansky continued to compose sacred music for Catherine, producing probably the bulk of his orthodox choral music during this period. For Paul, he meanwhile composed secular music reflecting the taste of his court, notably three operas all in the style of opera comique with short musical numbers simple enough to be performed by amateur visitors. In 
Performances of the operas were sometimes followed by choral cantatas, presumably composed by Bortniansky as well. He also taught the harpsichord and piano to the royal family and wrote several keyboard and chamber works. His collection of French romances from 1793 is the earliest known one by an Eastern Slavonic composer. After the death of Catherine the Great in 1796, Bortniansky was appointed director of the Imperial Court Chapel, making him the first native Slavonic composer to hold that post. During his tenure, the chapel increased its membership to 108 singers and expanded its repertory to include Western works such as Haydn's Creation, performed in 1802, Mozart's Requiem, performed in 1805, and Handel's Messiah, performed in 1806, as well as Beethoven's Christus am Ulberge in 1813. His weekly open choral rehearsals and concerts became central to the cultural life of St. Petersburg. Bortniansky now exerted an influence well beyond St. Petersburg. In 1815, aiming to standardize musical practice throughout the Russian Orthodox Church, he compiled and published a liturgical cycle in the style of plain chant that was distributed throughout Russia. Through a government decree of 1816, Bartnyansky and the Imperial Court Chapel won the exclusive right to print sacred music in the Russian Empire, a monopoly that continued into the late 19th century. Regarded by both Russians and Ukrainians as a central figure in their musical histories, Bortnyansky is credited with developing their genre of the sacred choral concerto to its highest forms. These multi-movement a cappella works may be described as Mozartian in their melodic content and Beethovenian in their symphonic treatment of the choral texture. Each of the concertos, which include at least 35 four-voice chorus and 10 for double chorus, explores various and unusual combinations of solo and tutti voices. During the 19th century, Bortniansky's choral concertos and hymns gained popularity across Western Europe. Some copies of his concertos preserved in the library of the Hofkapelle in Vienna date from as early as 1780. Berlioz, who heard the concertos in Russia in the late 1840s, praised the incredible freedom of their approach to choral sonority. Several of Bortniansky's works were translated into Latin and German and widely published in Western anthologies. In the Soviet era, music historians traced a folk idiom in the music, attempting thereby to restore Bortniansky's legitimacy as a native Slavonic composer. Despite shifting critical perceptions of his style, his sacred works have remained staples of the Russian Orthodox 
repertory. The post-Soviet subsequent reopening of churches in Russia and Ukraine has stimulated a concurrent revival of Bortnyansky's music. The All Music Guide lists recordings of four of Bortnyansky's chamber works, 88 of his choral works, three recordings of his concerti, extant of his sacred concertos, three of his works for keyboard, five of his operas, 14 recordings of compositions for solo voice with accompaniment, and 26 miscellaneous compositions. In my show notes is a link to a YouTube recording of a performance of Bortnyansky's Under Thy Mercy, performed by the Ambrosi Choir. That wraps episode number 72. My show notes, along with links to artist websites, recording label websites, YouTube videos of artist performances, are all posted on my Facebook page, The Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. Next week, I'll be interviewing jazz saxophonist Roxy Koss. Roxy has a new album coming out, and much of our discussion focuses on her new recording. Other upcoming interviews include jazz saxophonist Tom Talich, jazz trumpet player Josh Lawrence, jazz trumpet player and director of operations at the jazz record label Outside in Music, Alan Blanchard, and 14-year-old singer-songwriter Phenom Jack Barks. So, don't touch that dial. If you have questions, comments, or a suggestion of an artist, composer, or musical style for me to consider, you may email me at h-u-r-s-t-c at u-w-m dot e-d-u. So until next time, this is Craig W. Hurst and Carmel the Wonder Dog signing off from the musical universe of Professor Hurst. Have a great day.